Y'all can pop a squat. I've always wanted to use that term. I decided since we're acting crazy and meeting on Sunday nights, I'll try it now. Um, if this is your first time, I'm sorry. There's going to be a lot of things like that where I regret what I said and hope we can cut it out of the podcast. Um, so my name's Travis. Uh, as I said earlier, I'm super glad that you're here. Welcome to our first night on Sunday nights. Uh, I pray that you had a good Christmas. Happy New Year, that you didn't injure yourself too gravely with fireworks. Uh, we had a 4th of July party a couple months ago, and Marty and I almost died from a firework explosion, so... That, that subject is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I think somebody's still got the video on their phone, uh, but <laughs> this is not off to a good start. Um, so this is a new year, and I am looking forward to what I think is going to be perhaps the most ambitious thing that we've ever done as a ministry, uh, as we will be spending the entirety of this year in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, now, we'll take some breaks, probably probably eight to ten weeks total worth of breaks to cover Easter and give some other people the opportunity to speak so I can take a break. But uh, I would venture to say that about 40 weeks of this year will be spent systematically working through Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm going to ask you to forgive me if tonight seems a little bit more like a lecture, and that's because if we're going to spend the next 40 weeks in this text, I want to lay a really strong and firm foundation for what we're going to be standing on. So tonight is going to be a lot of laying of rebar and groundwork and concrete so that we can stand firmly and understand this well. And I think it's going to be a really transformative thing for us as believers and also for us as a ministry. Uh, This is actually the first December that I have not been on tour in about five years. And so this was a weird season for me. And many of you know that I play in like 15 different bands. Uh, Only a few of them tour, but when you play frequently enough across the country and across the state and across the region, you kind of develop places that you enjoy playing, Uh, kind of home home field advantage, if you will, except not always your home field. And so I love playing in Nashville because I have so many good friends and so many good memories, and there's just some really incredible venues in Nashville. And so that's a place that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, I, I don't mind Savannah, Georgia. I think it's a really nice city, and the venues are pretty cool, and so I enjoy playing in Savannah. I hate Arkansas with every fiber of my being because it's the worst state in the union, and it's absolutely miserable. Uh, so you develop these likes and these dislikes. I would venture to say uh, there is a bit of a bias here, but my favorite venues and venue are the ones in Tampa. And So my favorite venue that I've ever played in the whole of the country is a venue called Epic Problem, which is attached to the skate park of Tampa. And part of that is because of the fact that I grew up playing there. And so I remember when the only people watching my band were my mom and dad, and they didn't even like it. Uh, And uh, and then I remember playing for a couple hundred people, and then I remember the last-minute shows where we played for 15 people, but it was still really fun. So there's a lot of fond memories there. But I also genuinely love a lot of the people that are involved in putting that on because so many dear friends have gone into making that venue substantial. Uh, But a couple years ago, there was a season of about a month where uh, there was a great deal of tension surrounding everything that got put on at this venue. There were some misunderstandings. 
via the internet, which never results in any misunderstandings. So it was, I guess, like a fluke in the history of the internet. Uh, there was some misunderstandings, some confrontations, and one show that I was at, I don't think I was playing, but it ended in pretty much a street brawl in the parking lot. I've never seen anything so close to a total breakdown of social order in my entire life. There were, like, people getting thrown over cars, and, and it, it, I mean, it looked like a John Wayne Wild West movie. It was absolutely insane, and so I'm kind of leaning against the wall, trying to make sure that I don't lose my job for being in a street fight or something, and so I'm observing this from a distance and going, wow, this is utter chaos, and wow, um, and so it was, this, it was this very tense experience, and in the weeks following it, there was a great deal of tension surrounding everything that went on at the venue. People were worried that similar things were going to happen. And so I had a conversation with Matt, who is the guy who owns that venue. And Matt looks like something of a combination between Obi-Wan Kenobi and the Lord Jesus in terms of his facial complexion and just the, his makeup. Uh, not makeup, but the way that he is put together. I'll put it that way. Uh, and so I remember talking to Matt, and Matt just being incredibly frustrated, because this is a venue that mostly hosts punk shows, and so that, that's a community that's built on kind of a, a social progressivism and kind of a, a rejection of societal norms, and so you've got a ton of people who are pacifists or anarchists, or uh, just they function differently than society, and so Matt says in this conversation when he's really upset, he says, honestly, the reason I don't hire security guards at this venue is because I figured with all of these people buying into the ideals of pacifism that they wouldn't start beating each other up when they come to my shows. And the reason that I don't have police officers here is because when everybody buys into this idea that they can police themselves, and, and you would think that when that theory is played out in reality, it would result in people not beating each other up, but instead patiently working through their differences. And so he got more and more and more frustrated until he got to the point where he was like, listen, we were supposed to be different. That's how the world is supposed to handle their problems is with guns and with knives and with bombs and with napalm and Agent Orange and wars and fists and broken noses and black eyes. But that's not how we were supposed to function because this is the very thing that we rebel against in all of the songs that we sing. And, and I was struck by that statement. I think that, that his, his hope for that community is noble. But I wonder if we reappropriated Matt's statement and put it in the mouths of Christians, no longer referring to punk music, but punk music, but referring to the church. I wonder if that statement, we were supposed to be different, might ring just as true. I would venture to say that many of us, if you've grown up in the church or if you've been around the church, you've expressed that sentiment at one point or another. And I think with more validity than somebody commenting on some form of uh, progressive culture. It's one thing to say the punks were supposed to be different, but the church doesn't just claim to be a group of people that are loosely knit together by some nice ideas and some political theory, but it claims to be the very manifestation of the people of God on earth. So when we say we were supposed to be different, we're supposed to be different more so than any punk rocker I've ever known. We're supposed to be different. But many times what the church is marked by is a deep engagement with the politics of fallen men's systems rather than the politics of the kingdom of heaven. It's marked by conformity and corruption and not kindness and mercy. And it's marked by hypocrisy and not hearing and doing the word of God. And this produces a deep frustration, I think, in Christians. 
If you join our book club, which this is my shameless plug, uh, we're reading a book by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor in Nazi Germany. And he was eventually executed for trying to assassinate Hitler, so he's kind of like a superhero pastor. Uh, uh, he died in a Nazi death camp. But one of the things that Bonhoeffer said, and one of the things that's the content of this book that we'll be reading together, is that he felt like the strongest argument for the truthfulness of the Christian faith was not going to come from science, it wasn't going to come from philosophy, it wasn't going to come from history or apologetics, but it was going to come from the people of God gathering together and living differently in such a way that it proves the gospel to be true. Because more than any other subculture or countercultural, we were supposed to be different. I don't propose that we're going to solve all that tonight. I don't propose that we're even going to solve all of that this year. But on the screen behind me, I'd like for you to take a look at this excerpt from something called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was formulated in 325 AD by a group of Christian bishops. They're trying to decide what it is that we believed about Jesus. What do we believe about the divinity of Christ? What do we believe about the Trinity? And so many would say that as far as bare bones Christianity, if you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian. And we can debate, like, tattoos and drinking. But if you don't believe these things, you are not a Christian. So this is the bare-bones understanding of Christianity. It begins by saying, we believe in one God. And then it proceeds to unpack each of the persons of God. Here's what we believe about the Father. Here's what we believe about the Son. Here's what we believe about the Spirit. So read with me. This is an excerpt from the section on Jesus in the Nicene Creed. It says that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things are made. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified under, uh, under crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and he was buried. On the third day he rose again with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures, and he ascended into heaven. It goes on to mention the second coming. Now, this is a good and a helpful thing. I think creeds are good and and necessary things for the church to produce. And I think there's a, a great deal of beneficial content in the Nicene Creed about who Jesus is. What does it mean for Jesus to have always existed, but to come into existence in the form of a man? Great stuff. But when it comes down to summarizing Jesus's earthly life, the Nicene Creed reduces Jesus's 33 years on this earth to two points. Two and a half, maybe. Jesus was born of a virgin, and then he died. And at some point, he's coming back. Now, those are good points. We celebrate those. We just celebrated his virgin birth in Christmas, and we'll celebrate his resurrection in power over the course of the Easter season. But I do think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John might look at that creed and say, I worked really hard to fill in the details on either end of that point. And all you've got is the birth and the death. I think Matthew might look at that and say, did you not read anything I wrote? Because he did a little bit more than just getting born and dying and rising from the dead. That's kind of a big deal. Uh, I think John would say, I walked with this man for three years, and there's more than just that. Jordan read for us from Jesus' great commission. It says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey All of the things I have commanded you to do. Part of the reason that the church doesn't look different, and it's only a part of the reason, is because we're producing Nicene Christians and not Great Commission Christians. We've got people who can say, yeah, I believe in the virgin birth, and yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. But then when you ask them, 
So what did Jesus command us to do until we share in that newness of life? When we die, they say, I don't know, be nice. (laughs) Anybody can be nice. But here's the problem. When the only thing that we talk about as far as the life of Jesus is his birth and his death, we're preaching an eviscerated gospel because we're subtly conditioning people to think that Jesus' gospel only has any bearing on us after we die. But the reality is that Jesus came that you would have life and life in abundance starting now. And that when you step onto the other side of eternity, you would have it in its fullness. So what I don't want to do is make little of the cross. Because the cross is the core of everything we believe. The crucified and risen Lord is the heart of the Christian faith. But I'll say this. It's in Jesus' dying and rising that he makes atonement for our sins, that he redeems us and he restores us. It's in his resurrection that he delivers us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. But it's in his living and his teaching, which gets missed in that creed, that he teaches us how to live in the kingdom once we get there. And far too many Christians are only worried about what Jesus has accomplished for us after they die and not nearly concerned enough about what it means to live in the kingdom now. So here's my hope with the Sermon on the Mount is that we would open it, and for the next year, rather than only focusing on the other side of eternity, which is a brilliant thing that the Lord has brought to us through his death and his resurrection, I want us to spend this next year looking at what Jesus says about how we live now. So that, my friend Matt's words might be reapplied, and people would no longer say about the church, we were supposed to be different, but they would say, the church is different. And it would become the strongest apologetic for the truth of the gospel. We're not going to get very far in this sermon today. If you can believe that since we're spending a whole year on it. But would you bow your heads with me? We're going to open up this text and we're going to try and lay some groundwork. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for the good news of Christ. Him crucified and him raised. But also we thank you that he has taught us how to live in this kingdom that he's delivered us into. Uh, Lord, we pray now for your wisdom, for the illumination of the Holy Spirit when we open your word. God, that you would teach us now, that you would apply these truths to our hearts. God, we pray now for this next year, God, as we submit to the Great Commission and see that the gospel does not just have bearing on us after we die, but it has a claim to how we live now. God, I pray that you would move in us, Lord, that you would push aside the ignorance, the arrogance, the doubt, the foolishness, the unpreparedness, the hard-heartedness, the things that keep us from looking different. God, I pray that you would work in us now, that you would speak through your word as you have to your church for the last 2,000 years. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, do me this courtesy. Turn to the Sermon on the Mount, which is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 1. And if we're going to spend the next year in the Sermon on the Mount, it might be wise to talk about what the Sermon on the Mount is. Because, believe it or not, there's a couple different opinions on what it is, other than just a Sermon on a Mount. Uh, If you've taken any New Testament class at HCC or USF, especially if they walk through the Gospels, then you have likely been made aware of the fact that there is a parallel sermon in the Gospel of Luke called the Sermon on the Plain. Now, at face value, that's interesting because one is on a mountain and one is on a plain, and they both look like the same thing, but they're in different elevations. 
And so, you've likely heard many of the different theories about what this sermon is, and I'd like to put forward kind of what I think is the best synthesis of scholarship and of taking Scripture seriously. So there are some people, especially in the secular world, who would say that the Sermon on the Mount is really just a hodgepodge patchwork of all the things Jesus might have said at some point or another. And that Matthew took this sermon and he just kind of sewed it all together like a Frankenstein's monster sermon. Uh, and then they seek to detect the creases and the stitches where the hand got sewed onto the foot and so on and so forth. And that is certainly a perspective. But among evangelical Christians who affirm and uphold the authority of Scripture, I, I think there's two fair perspectives and then there's one that, that I would ascribe to. Uh, the first perspective is one that John Stott, who's a brilliant Bible scholar and has a book this big on the Sermon on the Mount, would affirm. Because the sermon begins in this way. It says, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up. To the mountain, and then he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. Now, John Stott thinks this is a condensation of a very long period of teaching. We've done retreats before here at Impact. This is kind of like Jesus's Serata Beach Resort retreat, uh, without the IHOP or or the beach because it's on a mountain. Uh, and so, so what John Stott thinks is that that this is really a condensation of a retreat in which Jesus goes up onto the mountains to withdraw from the crowds. And his disciples come up with him, and Jesus spends days or weeks teaching them these points. And this is the distillation of all that Jesus taught the apostles. I think that's a fair perspective. I don't think that that is unfaithful to the biblical text. But uh, there is a professor at the University of South Florida, a guy named Dr. Strange, who some of you have had. I love this man. And on his, on his door, he actually has the Dr. Strange comic character, uh, like a printout on his door. It's great. Uh, but he is a, a very strong believer, and he's, he's a good man. And I took Corey, actually, and myself, and I believe Reese, have all taken Jesus' life and teaching with Dr. Strange at different periods. And uh, there was a student in one of my classes who was very clearly opposed to the gospel message. That doesn't make him a mean person. But he was very confrontational. Anytime anything remotely religious was expressed he was always like yeah but and then dr strange proceeded to kick his yeah but but um but in the sermon on the mount he drew attention to the fact that the sermon on the mount and the sermon on the plain are almost the same but one's on a mountain and one's on a plain and there's kind of some differences as well and he was like clearly this is made up or isn't exactly what jesus said and uh, dr strange brought out a point that that i would ascribe to he said this what teacher do you know what pastor do you know that only preaches a sermon one time several weeks ago i spoke in the adult service here at bay life and last week i spoke again the first time i spoke mark came up to me and he said i want you to preach and i said i do that and he said no, i want you to preach for grown-ups and i said that's scary <laughs> and i said okay so what do you want me to preach on and he said i want you to bring out your silver bullet best sermon you've got the one you're the most comfortable with and i want you to preach that now that's in a day and age where we have iPods and iPhones, and we have podcasts, and we have YouTube videos. So sermons can be documented, and they can be propagated throughout the world. I've preached on the 23rd Psalm almost the exact same sermon five times now. Uh, and in each audience, I change it a little bit. When I'm talking to grown-ups, I don't talk about video games. And when I'm talking to, when I'm talking to college students, I don't know, I talk about Kanye West or something. No, I don't. Um, but, but there are subtle shifts. It's the same content. It's the same sermon, but it changes subtly to each audience to which it is delivered. Now, consider our modern day and age where sermons can be documented and can be uh, dispersed verbatim, and then consider Jesus's ancient context where the only thing that travels from a sermon is the sound of the preacher's voice. 
And then consider how in demand Jesus was. So Dr. Strange's perspective, I would say my perspective, is that the Sermon on the Mount represents Jesus' silver bullet of teaching. So when Jesus would step into a community, he probably taught a whole lot of things, but he probably started with the Sermon on the Mount. And say, blessed are, and people would go, hmm, and turn, and Jesus would begin to teach. So the point in all of this is, this is one of the core elements of Jesus' teaching about what it means to follow him. And because it is a core element of what Jesus is saying, because this is Jesus' silver bullet, nothing about this sermon is wasted. From where he positions himself in proclaiming it in this instance, to the things that he says, not a single part of this sermon is wasted, which is why we're only going to get through one verse tonight. So chapter 5, verse 1, the Sermon on the Mount begins in this way. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, and the Beatitudes begin. Now, ever since the ascension of Jesus, Christians have had to go back to the Old Testament with a fresh set of eyes. A fresh set of eyes, kind of like you go back to Fight Club after knowing the ending, which I won't ruin for you, but the main character is schizophrenic. Sorry. Uh, At the end of the movie, you discover things that make the rest of the movie, the beginning of the movie, look totally different. It's kind of like a sixth sense when you find out Bruce Willis is dead. This is the great sermon where I ruin all of the movies you haven't seen yet. But, but you see the end of the film and you go, oh, so that's why all of these things were happening this way. In the same way, in the fullness of time when Jesus appears, the apostles and the people of Israel have to go back to the Old Testament and go, oh, so that's why these things are where they are. And they begin to see Jesus' face shining throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. They see him in Hosea, who is faithful to an adulterous wife, just like Jesus is faithful to his adulterous church. They see him in Abraham and Isaac, only God does not spare his own son as he spares Abraham's son. They see him in the garden, when God promises that there will come a day when the head of Satan will be crushed. And they see him over and over and over again, because the whole of the scriptures speak of who Jesus is. And so we call this types and anti-types, because there are not only events in the Old Testament, but there are people in the Old Testament that are pictures of what Jesus will be like. One of them that you might be familiar with is David. We're told that Jesus, the Messiah, will reign on the throne of David. And so David is in many ways a foreshadowing of what Jesus will be like, what the Messiah is going to be like. But no figure does Jesus more closely identify with than that of Moses. Because as Moses leads the people of God out of physical slavery in Egypt, Jesus delivers the people of God out of spiritual slavery to sin. And as the people of Israel are spared the angel of death by the sprinkling of the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, so the blood of Jesus prevents the death and the decay that comes from sin to the people of God. And so over and over and over again, Jesus is referred to as a second Moses, a new Moses. He is, he's a picture of who Moses is. So when I say that everything is significant in this sermon, down to how Jesus frames it, the first verse says this, that Jesus saw the crowds in Galilee that were following him, and he went up onto the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. Now when Moses climbs up on a mountain, it's to meet with God and to receive the law. And so Moses leads the people of Israel out into the wilderness, and God says, I've got some laws for you because y'all are acting way stupid. (laughs) Not in those exact words. But he delivers them, he brings them out into the wilderness. Moses goes up onto the mountain, 
and God gives Moses the law. Jesus walks up onto the mountain, and he delivers the law to his disciples as God himself. So this is a picture of the law, but this is not just the law of Moses. This is a greater law than Moses could have ever hoped to deliver. And so Jesus stands on the mountain, not as Moses bringing the law back down, but as God dictating the law to his disciples. So Jesus sits down on the mountain and presents the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if we are to understand the significance of this, as the people who originally read it would have understood the significance, then it would be worthwhile for us to see how the law functioned in Israel. Because very clearly, Matthew and Jesus intend to draw a parallel between the old law and Jesus' new law in the Sermon on the Mount. So what did the law mean for Israel? How did it function? And then what does that mean for how the Sermon on the Mount functions for the people of God under a new covenant? I would say this first and foremost. The law delivered at Sinai, the laws of Moses, all 400 and something of them in Exodus and Leviticus first and foremost separated the people of God from the world around them. Not in a segregationalist Jim Crow way, but in a way that made them profoundly distinct from everybody else that surrounded them. So uh, very often when archaeologists are doing digs in the ancient Near East area, they determine whether or not they're dealing with a Semitic, perhaps Jewish dig site, depending on if there's pig bones there near the fire pits or not. Because Jewish people didn't eat pork, and pretty much everybody else did, with the exception of Muslims who came along a little bit later. So there are these cultural things in the law that segregate the people of Israel from everyone around them. So much so that they can look at something and say, there's no pig bones here. This is probably a Jewish, Jewish camp. This is a Jewish city. And, and there's all kinds of cultural things from uh, pork to shellfish to the way that they interact with certain cloths. They wouldn't have interwoven fabric. And so there's all these cultural distinctives. But it's not just cultural distinctives that the law instill in the people of God. There's ethical distinctives too because it's not just that they don't eat pork or that they don't eat shellfish unless there's nothing else to eat. It's not just that they don't wear like nylon or polyester. But, but there's other things too. There's ethical things. The people of Israel every seven years freed their slaves, which was not common in the ancient world. The people of Israel, when a slave escaped from a foreign nation and crossed into the borders of Israel, was considered a free man or woman. These are ethical distinctives. The people of Israel worshipped one God. They were monotheists. They didn't believe in multiple gods, nor did they honor them. There are not just cultural things like what they eat and how they dress and whether or not they're circumcised that distinguish them. But there are moral things that set them apart in the law. In the same way, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' confrontation with the world. And he says, if you are to be my people, here's how you look different. There's a phrase called contramundi, which means against the world. John Stott refers to the Sermon on the Mount as Yeshua contramundi. This is Jesus against the world. There's a quote that I'm going to paraphrase, but it will be on the screen behind me so you can see how bad I butcher it. Uh, where he says, there's not a single thing, there's not a single thing in this sermon at which Jesus does not confront the world and its systems. Because we are supposed to look different. Now here's the thing, as you and I who have grown up in the world, and have grown up in the world's system of ethics, are sometimes going to be delighted and enchanted by the Sermon on the Mount over the course of the next year. 
Sometimes we're going to look at it and go, oh, that's so great. Love your neighbor as yourself. These things on prayer are so wonderful. And storing up treasure in heaven and not being greedy, that's so awesome. But then there's going to be times where we come to the Sermon on the Mount and we find it abrasive and we find it culturally offensive. And we say, why would God think that way? Why would God care about that? Doesn't he have like planets to keep in orbit by sustaining gravity? And, 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 and we may find it to be almost petty, but, but I think Tim Keller makes a great point here, uh, is that if the God that you worship thinks and feels and believes and expects of you only the things that you agree with, then it's not God you worship, but a picture of yourself that you wrote God in Sharpie under. And so, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount... You should expect, one, if you practice it as it is meant to be practiced, for it to make you look very different. And two, for it to begin to sand off the rough edges of your soul and begin to shape you into the person God would have you to be rather than the one that the world would have you to be. So the law not only sets the people of God apart, but we're told in the New Testament that the purpose of the law is to show people that they're wicked, which sounds kind of morbid a little bit. But the law of the people of Israel, the one that Moses brought down from Sinai, was to show them that they were wicked, that they were fallen, and that they were incapable of standing before God with any measure of righteousness. So as I was reading on the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of books on it, one of the things that several of the commentators note is how people have reacted to the sermon throughout the centuries, last 2,000 years. And John Stott, uh, who's been incredibly helpful, talks about the different politicians and the different theologians and the different thinkers and humanists. They've all come to the Sermon on the Mount, and they almost always begin with delight. And they go, oh, this is wonderful. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is wonderful. Care for the poor. Uh, Don't be arrogant. Don't be greedy. Store up treasure in heaven. This is great. I'm going to start practicing this. And they come to it in joy, and they leave in despair because they find that to live out this law is impossible. They come to the Sermon on the Mount really giddy and really excited, and they leave incredibly depressed because it's beyond anything that any human being of their own merit could do. The laws of Moses, at the very least, you can maybe white-knuckle through for a week. Like It's things like don't murder people, not too difficult for most of us. Don't commit adultery, maybe a little bit less difficult than murder for some people. But Jesus doesn't just say don't murder But he says if you are angry and bitter with somebody, then it's the same thing as murder. And he doesn't just say don't commit adultery, but if you look upon someone with lust, it's the same as committing adultery. Martin Luther referred to the Sermon on the Mount as Moses times a thousand and multiplied to infinity. Because it's not just outward righteousness, but it's inward righteousness to the point of impossibility. So now we're all really discouraged, right? (laughs) And bummed out because we won't ever be able to put this into practical use. No. The joy of the Sermon on the Mount is it's for the people of God who've been given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives the people of God the ability to walk in righteousness. So we're going to spend a year on the Sermon on the Mount. But I would venture to say that at the end of this year, you will find the rest of your lifetime devoted to living out the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Because it's not something that you will ever accomplish in one year. And it's something that you constantly have to rely on the Spirit's guidance for. So it begins by saying this. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up onto the mountain. And he sat down and his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. God himself on the mountain delivering a more perfect law than one that Moses could have ever carried. And then it 
begins by saying he opened his mouth and he taught them. This was a formula used in ancient Judaism to describe when rabbis gave definitive and wise sayings. The end of Matthew's gospel ends with the Great Commission. And Jesus says, go and make disciples and teach them to obey all of the things that I taught you. And I would imagine that in the apostles' mind, they said, oh, that sermon Jesus kept preaching in every city. That's going to be really hard for people. But we're going to give it a shot. So this is my prayer over the next year uh, that you and I would become disciples of Jesus, not just Nicene Christians who talk about the death and resurrection, but we begin to see this sermon worked out in our lives. We say, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? How can we be more uh, like the meek who the scriptures say inherit the earth? How do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it look like to pray the Lord's Prayer? How do we begin to look different? Because my friend Matt is right. We should be different. And Jesus has called us to be different. But he didn't just call us to an impossible task, but he gave us the roadmap and his spirit to guide us. So we're going to pray. We're going to continue in worship. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening. God, just thanking you for your goodness, for your mercy. Uh, Lord, we come before you asking uh, that you would now direct us in worship by your spirit. Lord, we come before you asking uh, that as we come to the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes for the next nine weeks, God, that you would show us what it means to look different. That this law... This law of Moses multiplied and multiplied by infinity. God, that you would show us that it's only by the Spirit that we can live this way. But that when we do live this way, the world will look on us and see the strongest argument for the truthfulness of the power of Jesus in our lives. God, we ask that you would meet with us now through worship. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand.